Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Dr. Psych Mom Show. This has been going pretty well so far. I even saw that I just hit 500 listens. So that's great. Everybody who listens, thank you so much. Please share it. Please like it. Rate it. Only rate it if you're going to rate it positively uh, on Spotify. And please keep listening. And also suggest topics. Last podcast was a topic that somebody suggested on co-parenting. So I love to do podcasts and blog posts in response to suggestions. Anyhow, today I'm going to be talking about compatibility, which is somewhat of a dirty word in couples counseling. I mean, it doesn't doesn't have to be, but it can be. It can feel like that because it implies that there's some innate traits that predetermine whether people are going to have a happy marriage or not. And when you're in couples counseling, you're really trying to hope that through the skills you learn, you're going to be able to make it all work out and that it's just a matter of communication problems. That's like a big catch-all phrase that is used far too much in my mind in couples counseling or trust issues or resolving empathic ruptures or what have you. Now, empathic ruptures, by the way, are when somebody thinks something really bad happened in in the relationship that makes them stop trusting you and they kind of never forget it because it's never been resolved. So I can discuss that more in a different podcast. But anyway, compatibility, even though people like to move the focus off of it and onto skills building in couples work, sometimes, as we all know, compatibility is really the issue. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about different types of compatibility that I have found are really important and that people who are single should really look for in terms of uh, finding a partner that is going to be a good fit in the long term. And I'll also talk about what I've found to be important areas of compatibility that differ from that that are unique to second marriages. Okay, because sometimes those are pretty different. You know yourself already. You don't need certain things out of the relationship, but you really do need others. So let's first look at regular old compatibility. If you are single of any sort, first marriage, second marriage, third marriage, um, after that, just, you know, I don't know. (laughs) You probably have more experience than I do about marriage at that point. You can figure this stuff out. But anyhow, let's look at important areas of compatibility. So first is attitudes about gender roles. Now, this is real important because if you think that you're going to stay home with kids after the baby's born and uh, your husband does not because he grew up with a working mother and he feels like you ought to be able to balance everything like she did and women are just the same as men and he's going to get mad when you don't earn money, then that's a good thing to know before you get pregnant. 
And if you think that a man should be big and strong and protect you and do stuff around the house that you can't do, and your husband does not think that because he grew up with a father who was a doctor and never did any handiwork around the house at all and didn't get dirty, then, you know, that's going to be, that's going to lead to problems and anything else in between. So there's lots of ways that different ideas about gender roles can really influence whether or not you're going to be compatible in the long term. Next is, you'll be shocked that I'm going there, but sex. No, I'm kidding. I talk about sex constantly on this podcast and in general in my therapy sessions, only when people want to, though. I don't force sex talk on anybody. So the importance of sex here is that... This is, cannot be overstated. If you really think that a marriage is based on a loving, healthy sexual relationship in which you are frequently and enthusiastically engaging in sex and your partner thinks, yeah, sex is nice. We had a lot of sex when we were dating. So, you know, trails off. That's totally normal. My parents didn't really have a lot of sex. I don't think they never touched each other. That's totally fine with me. Well, then, you know, you can already see, you know, the dollar bills racking up in your couples counselor's bank account. Although if they had any sense, they would refer you out to a sex therapist. But anyhow, this is not going to be good for your marriage overall for you to think very differently about sex. And it's important. Now, it's not drive. I'm talking about importance. So... As I've said ad nauseum, women's sex drive decreases in monogamy. So, you know, you could be a real firecracker when you're dating. Then, you know, two years in and then even more like five years in when you have a toddler, you could have this sex drive if you're female of like a doorknob. But you could still philosophically value the importance of sex and say to your partner, Oh, I'm making time for it. I'm trying to get in the mood because I understand responsive desire. You know, I had a podcast on responsive desire, by the way. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, that this, my sex drive does come back and I do want to still connect by hugging and kissing. And I do, you know, try to, to get into the mood and get out, you know, without the kids whenever possible because I too value sex. Now that's going to be very different. Now, this is not just women. There are men that don't value sex at all also. And they can have a high sex drive or not, but they don't value it as a way to bond. And if you're a woman that does value it as a way to bond and a man that doesn't value it as a way to bond, you're going to have similar problems. So the importance of sex is super, super, super key to having a happy marriage. And it really can't be taught. I try my best and I have changed many people's attitudes about the importance of sex such that they can understand and empathize with their partner for the first time, which can lead to a better sex life. But of course, all else being equal, it is much easier to be with somebody that values the importance of sex at the same level as you do, whether that's a lot or a little. The next one is the importance of romance. If you are somebody that is like super into romance and loves cards and flowers and little cute gifts, then you would be very happy with my husband, but he's taken. (laughs) Anyway, yes, uh, my husband is pretty romantic. I'm pretty romantic. That always mattered to me a lot in other relationships that was not really present. And then, you know, or it was present, but the person didn't really like to do it. So they were trying their hardest, but, you know, it wasn't their love language, shall we say. 
So if you think long term that you are somebody who really does value things like a romantic card or somebody who says sweet things to you, it doesn't have to be about gifts, obviously. Somebody who sees you know, the sunset and thinks it's beautiful, somebody who calls you beautiful, somebody who really um, feels deeply about many things. Really, this is a code word, honestly, or an alternate word for a highly sensitive person. So if it is very, you're not going to get a real big romantic that isn't on some level a highly sensitive person, because highly sensitive people, again, you could read the book by Elaine Aaron or anything on my Dr. Psych Mom website about highly sensitive people. Highly sensitive people feel everything deeply, so they're the ones who are going to notice how beautiful you look, you know, in the moonlight or whatever floats your boat. Other people may not. And if this is super important in making you happy, it's better to know it now than when you're sad a decade in and it just doesn't get any better. Fourth one is the role of extended family. There are people that never talk about the role of extended family and what what um, differences they perceive in how much they are going to interact with extended family, especially after their kids are born. So if you are somebody that thinks, oh, yeah, sure, we'll have a baby, but we could, you know, if I got a job on the other coast, I could totally move. And you think that's obvious. And then your partner is like, no way, we have our kids now. So we have to live 10 minutes from my mother because my mother has to see the baby at least every day or week, then you are not going to be happy. This is a basic compatibility issue is how much do you want your parents involved? Did you ever watch The Bachelor that I used to write about for Huffington Post? Well, on The Bachelor, frequently, the thing that they all seem to have in common, or most of them, or at least the ones that win usually, they have is the importance of family. They all, God bless them, seem to love their fully functional families. I'm so happy for them. Obviously, many of us do not share such a a delight of a fully functional, healthy, extended family of origin, but these lucky bastards do. And once you have one of these families that you want to spend a lot of time with, you're usually compatible with somebody else with a family that they want to spend a lot of time with. So that's how these people get all these big ass family reunions with all these matching t-shirts that adult children of dysfunctional families are like, what the F is that? But anyhow, so that is a big thing about compatibility. If Also, if you do not want your family involved at all, you don't think that your partner is even going to be cool with that if they love family so much. They may always be entreating you to invite over your family, which is really going to irritate you if you do not want that connection. Okay, so next we have finances. So finances are super important because this is one of the major reasons that people divorce is that they don't agree on money. And if you think that saving is, um, you know, the reason for living and your partner feels like carpe diem, seize the day, you know, you can't take it with you, this is going to lead to tremendous conflict, especially 
especially once you have kids and you want to put everything into a college savings account and they want to spend everything at Disney World. And this is not a joke. People have wildly different views on how to spend money, often originates in very different families of origin and very different family narratives around what we do with money. And so many people don't talk about this before. So if you're getting anything from this podcast, by the way, it should be you need to have a lot of discussions before you get married on sensitive topics. Now, as somebody who talks about sex every day for a living, I can't even remember when I thought money was a sensitive topic because it's so not sensitive, I feel like, compared to, you know, sex. But many people don't ever, ever, ever talk about money. They think it's embarrassing. They think it's tacky. If this is you you got to get over that and you have to start talking about it openly with any potential partner. How much you make, how much they make, how much you want to make, how much the making money is important to you. What about your retirement goals? Somebody once wrote in a letter to my blog about how they wanted their retired partner to be subsidizing them so that they could retire quicker. This was just a boyfriend, not a husband. And the guy said no. And she was very upset. Well, obviously, she got too far into that relationship without saying, my goal is to live off of your money, which is, you know, her goal. I mean, she could find other men who would do it, I'm sure. If she was pleasant and fun and attractive, I guess she could find other guys. But it wasn't him. So they should have talked about those different viewpoints on money way before she got too invested. Now, I told you that we would also talk about key areas of compatibility for second marriages. Now, along with the ones that I previously mentioned, those are all still pretty important, although honestly, the role of extended family, uh, not to be, you know, um, morbid, but that really definitionally grows less important. It grows less extended, you know? I mean, you're not going to be worrying at age 75 about how often your parents are going to watch the children. I sincerely hope, even in today's very child-centered climate, that would be an anomaly. So that one doesn't matter as much. Attitudes about gender roles matters, but I mean, you know, if you're like a woman who owns your own business and you're like 50 years old, is he going to think you're going to become a house, you know, a homemaker? Like, not unless he's an idiot. So that sort of becomes less important. You're selecting already on that. And you're... uh, profile on OkCupid or what have you, you're going to write something like, you know, um, you know, female skydiver seeks whatever, and he's not going to think that you like to sit at home and knit for him. So attitudes about gender roles, still important, but really self-explanatory by that point. The importance of sex is super important still, even more important probably, because in a second marriage, you're not necessarily having kids. So I'm looking at the more common second marriage. There's people that get married real young, Then they get divorced, then they get married again, and then that second marriage is really the primary marriage in which there's children. But I'm not really talking about those people. I'm talking more about the ones I see in my practice that have had a first marriage where they have the children and then the second marriage comes after and is not expected to have any any other children. If they do, that's fine, but that's that's not one of the key motivators. So in this case, the importance of sex is even stronger because you are this companionship and connection is the key reason it isn't to build a family yeah you're going to build a family but your closeness is is 
a reason in and of itself to be together. So sexual compatibility is super, super important for the second marriage. The importance of romance is still very um, key. Again, as you get older, this is easier to spot. If somebody is not very romantic, you're already going to know and uh, by like the second date or something like that. So finances are important, but they were independent when you met your second partner. So it's kind of easier to keep it that way than it is when you're young and you're idealistic and you, you know, merge finances right away. You also have a whole history of kind of stories of how this person prioritizes money as an adult that can make you understand real quick whether or not you're going to be compatible in that dimension. One that comes up more for second marriages that I didn't say in the first was retirement plans. So people have really wildly different views of what they think life is going to be like when they retire. And this is something that you should talk about relatively soon as you're dating and you're, you know, after divorce. Somebody who wants to work and work until they're 75 is going to be very different from somebody who wants to retire as early as possible and travel. They're going to have different expectations for for everything, including, you know, how money is saved or spent and, I mean, how much fun versus obligation people are supposed to have in their life, how much meaning they find in work versus other activities. So this is a super important conversation to have. I mean, yeah, young people can have it, but when you're 20, thinking about retirement, I mean, it's it's really nonsensical. It seems like it's it would never happen. However, when you're around 40, you know, it seems like it can't get there soon enough sometimes. So this is when you should be talking about it. Now, the next one that is important for second marriages from what I see is health and fitness compatibility. There are a lot of people that, you know, after they have young kids, they decide to get back into shape. And this can be you know, really a big outlet for them. And I'm talking about men too. I mean, men have little kids and that's kind of all that they're doing nowadays. Men do a lot of childcare. But after people get out of the baby hole, they, you know, either decide to focus on their health and fitness or they don't, you know. And if you're one that does coupled with one who doesn't, this means you're going to have real different ideas for how you're spending vacations, how you're spending weekends, what time you get up, whether you go out drinking the night before. It, it, I see a lot of incompatibility issues arise uh, when people are dating after divorce and they are somebody who really hates to exercise coupled with somebody who really loves to exercise and they're trying to kind of crowbar themselves together. But why? This is a massive area of incompatibility. You are never going to be somebody who likes to get up and bike at 5 a.m. if you're somebody who liked to go out until 11 p.m. and then lay in bed until 10 a.m. on the weekends that you don't have the kids. So I say don't try to make this work if it doesn't seem to you like you're really going to be compatible in this area. People love to work out and with their spouse in their second marriages. This is like a major source of fun and compatibility for a lot of people. So if you are somebody who really, really values health and fitness, and I mean, it's the same for food, you know? So if you are somebody who is into healthy eating coupled with somebody who doesn't, that's really not going to last in the second marriage. A lot of what you guys do is going to be cooking and eating as children get older, leave the house, etc. If you're not compatible on what you like to eat and cook and eat and where you like to go, it's hard. 
does any of this stuff mean that you should definitely say no to Mr. Perfect who isn't vegan like you are? No, but I'm just saying what I learn about compatibility that may help you to make a decision when you are on the uh, brink of deciding what to do about an incoming potential partner. And the last one is socializing. So if you are a huge extrovert and you love to socialize, you are planning a real different second half of your life than a guy or a woman who's a massive introvert. So this is going to become even more salient as the children are older, out of the house, and then what do you do? You could be a couple that entertains every weekend and flits from social activity to social activity, or you could be some you could be a couple that mostly stays at home. And if you are going to be fighting about this, why not just meet one of the other half of the universe that is an extrovert slash introvert like you? That is a lot easier than trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. And now I briefly alluded to this before, but again, none of these rules are hard and fast, but what they are can be guidelines when you are trying to assess whether you can really see a life with somebody. If you're deeply in love with somebody, none of this is going to matter. You really aren't even listening to this podcast, probably. People in love don't really listen to podcasts on assessing compatibility. They are just having fun being compatible with somebody (laughs) on deeper dimensions than maybe even these. But for people who like to think about what to, let's say, like, like think about it like this. What if you have a dating profile and you're wondering what to highlight? Some of these characteristics are pretty major. So if you are a huge extrovert, then put that in there. Somebody's going to love that. And the person who is a major introvert may not love it. And therefore, you've already edited out somebody that you may not be super compatible with, especially for, again, the second half of your life when you have a lot more free time a lot more no child time to do things that you want to do. And if you want to go to parties and this person never does, that may be an ongoing source of stress and discontent. So before I sign off, I did want to address one question that I get, which is how much can somebody change on one of these dimensions? Well, the answer is it depends on the person. People, especially people that are post-divorce looking for their soulmate to spend the rest of their life with, um, that were in an unhappy marriage originally, so this is my post-divorce clients who are looking for second marriages, uh, people, for the right person, they could, they could be a lot more flexible. This is why a lot of people come into therapy, by the way, after divorce. They've been told that they're rigid and inflexible by their ex-spouse. And, you know, like they want to work on that because nobody wants to be with that kind of person and they do want to find somebody else. So if you know that you could be rigid and inflexible, then, yeah, you could try to grow and change on any of these dimensions. People evolve all the time. If I didn't think people could change and grow, I'd be in the wrong profession. So I deeply believe people can change and grow. However, As we said, there are things where people are wired differently. An extrovert is just wired differently than an introvert. Can an introvert, though, make a real good faith effort to have fun at parties? Yeah, they can, of course. Can somebody who isn't into extended family try to work on being, you know, more open and receptive to their partner's family? Yeah, of course, people can change and grow all the time. However, there are certain dimensions that are a lot easier when you are on the same, kind of on the same place on the graph, 
<clears throat> for romantic or highly sensitive or for extrovert introvert or you can't really make somebody into a marathon runner if they're if they really don't even value it that that is really the key what I just said the person has to at least value it if you go on a first date with a woman and you're a marathon runner and she's like oh my god that's so cool I really kind of always wanted to do that but you know I don't know I just never never could figure it out yeah, look, maybe this is the person that is going to start running or walking with you or at least cheer for you at the marathons. But if you go on a first date and you're like, I'm a marathon runner, and the woman is like, well, you know, I can never really understand why somebody would spend all that time just running. Kind of reminds me of Forrest Gump. Well, then, I mean, this is not the woman for you. So if anybody does, as a rule, condescend to your major likes, dislikes, personality preferences, etc., then that is not the person for you. So you can refer back to my post, like I have just wrote a post, like why do you think it would be not, it would be impossible to get somebody better than your partner? This is for the situation when somebody's not happy with their partner. There's some people who think that they only deserve to be with somebody who kind of treats them like shit. You don't. So if you are somebody who's a marathon runner, you don't deserve to be with somebody who doesn't think it's important. If you are an extrovert, you don't want to be with somebody who condescends to that and thinks that you're superficial. So you at least want somebody who respects and validates your way of life, even if they're not exactly the same. So that would be the ideal. If you can't get somebody who is another marathon runner, then get the person who's supportive to the marathon runner. All right, that's my PSA on that, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and I hope everyone has a great day. Bye-bye, guys.